I do hope that in maybe five, 10, 20 years time, we don't need to explain what Bitcoin is because everyone's just using it. A bit like how we don't need to explain what the euro is because everyone's just using it. But it is really important to understand what is money, where does it come from, and why can't I just create it? I think there are really important questions to answer yourself if you want to understand why Bitcoin is important because it's a new monetary paradigm. And I think that it's not inevitable, but I think that the direction of humanity is going towards a more Bitcoinized world. We're very early in this journey, but I think that 10, 20 years time, there will be a lot more countries adopting it as legal tender and a lot more people using it as a day-to-day -day money. Welcome to the Mr. Rat Show, where I talk to the most interesting global personalities about the future of humanity. Hello, beautiful humans. I want you to imagine a future where our freedoms are a bit mixed up. Picture a future where central banks and corporations team up not only to determine the value of your money, but also to control how, when, and where you use it. Now, I think many of us do not want to live in a society like that. And here's where the bright spot of the story comes in. There is a new kind of money in town decentralized and free from too much control. My guest today is like a friendly guide sharing stories about communities around the world using this liberating money, not only as a store of value, but also as a medium of exchange. Joe, welcome to the Mr. Rat Show. How are you doing? ¿Cómo estás? Hey, man. ¿Cómo está? Todo bien, gracias. How are you doing, man? Good. How are things? Good. Thank you for being here, Joe. It's a pleasure to have you here. We finally made it. Yeah, no, thank you for having me and thank you as well for rescheduling. I think you caught me when I was in Ghana and I was completely swamped and also without a stable internet connection. What? So now you're talking to me from Portugal. All right. And yeah, the internet connection is a lot more stable. <laughs> what were you doing in Ghana, actually? I was attending a conference called Afro Bitcoin, which is a sort of Bitcoin conference in Ghana, West, uh, Ghana, where is it? West Africa? Yeah, it's West Africa. Just come back from there. I've forgotten where it is. And uh, I was also traveling around seeing what the Bitcoin adoption scene looks like in Ghana as well. So I went to the Togo border and I went to a couple of places just outside of Accra to, yeah, to see what was happening, which is sort of part of my job and part of what I like to do as well as a, as a passion project. That's amazing. Joe, I want to start by understanding how are people in the emerging world, let's say in a country like Ghana or in Peru, where I know you also went recently, are using Bitcoin. Awesome. Okay. So it's, how do I explain this? I mean, I guess your audience is mostly sort of Western centric. So they might've heard of Bitcoin. Right. Maybe they think that Bitcoin is a scam. Um, maybe they might have already switched off when they heard there's this crazy Bitcoin guy on the, uh, <laughs> on the other side of the Hopefully microphone. Hopefully not. Um, to, yeah, I was going to say to which I say, please, please do stick around. It's not what you think. And I was also where you were uh, six years ago when I used to make and write content for Bloomberg, among other sort of mainstream publications. And I actually was living in the Ivory Coast and I used to drive to work every day. Uh, well, I didn't drive. My driver drove me, um, a, a really lovely gentleman called Guillaume, who I'm still in contact with. And one day, this was early 2019, he explained to me that his son was sending him Bitcoin uh, as a, like a remittance tool from Paris. So his son was living in Paris. Guillaume was living in Abidjan, the, the capital of the Ivory Coast, where I was going to work every day. By the way, sidebar, I was paying a bribe to go to work every day. And the bribe was like less than a euro. 
uh, like the equivalent. And I ended up expensing this bribe to uh, Oxford Business Group, which then was paid by Bloomberg. So Bloomberg effectively paid for my bribe to oh, go right. to work every there day. There you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but back to the story, uh, Guillaume was explaining how his son sent him Bitcoin uh, as like, you know, his son was making a lot more money than he was in, in Paris. And the best way to get the money there was through this Bitcoin thing. So I stopped Guillaume and I explained to him very carefully that Bitcoin is a scam. It's a Ponzi scheme. Uh, it's a joke. You know, it's going to zero. Um, you need to stop using that thing. When was and this? Sorry, he, sorry. When was this? What year was this? Like uh, 2019, like February, March. At this point, I'd already heard about Bitcoin quite a few times, and I'd actually used Bitcoin as a student at university uh, on like the Silk Road, which your listeners might be familiar with, but it's like a giant sort of marketplace where you can buy all sorts of funny things, which is really interesting and fun to do as a student. Right. Uh, but I sort of wrote it off and wasn't aware of its potential, I guess. Mm. And I just saw it as this really annoying digital money tool that was hard to use, but I understood why the Silk Road used it because... Bitcoin is technically pseudonymous. Like it's not anonymous. You can't hide. And if you want to do some funny business, do not do it with Bitcoin. That's a really important PSA that I have to make um, because a lot of people get that wrong. Right. Uh, a lot know, of people are, think that Bitcoin is looking, anonymous. Exactly. And uh, if you actually want to do some naughty things with Bitcoin, uh, then you're going to get caught. And lots of people have been caught. So if you want to do some naughty things, use the current system. So, you know, <laughs> use central banks, use your local banker. Like fiat money is really good for doing dodgy stuff. Just look right. at terrorism. You know, it's 99% funded by uh, fiat money. Right. Uh, anyway, we've gone off track here. <laughs> so I stopped Guillaume and I explained to him that, uh, yeah, it's a scam and all that. And uh, slowly but surely, I realized that I was wrong and that uh, Bitcoin is actually this very useful tool. And it's particularly important in emerging markets, which brings me to your sort of uh, op opening question. Uh, so I try to write positive stuff for Bloomberg and Oxford Business Group about how there was lots of remittance into Africa through this Bitcoin tool. They didn't like it because in their eyes and their view, Bitcoin is this sort of scammy Ponzi scheme. So after a couple of years of sort of soul searching and trying to work out where to best put my efforts, I quit the sort of mainstream media industry and started working for a company called Cointelegraph. And with them, I was able to sort of flex my muscles writing about Bitcoin and to an extent, crypto um, and other things, but mostly Bitcoin, uh, through the view of the you know, emerging markets, because that's where I had my experience. Like prior to working at Cointelegraph, I'd lived in Tunisia, the Ivory Coast, Mexico, Trinidad and Tobago, Serbia, uh, blah, 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 Senegal, and, and a few other countries, like what we'd call you know, frontier markets or developing countries. The lingo always changes. Right. And uh, yeah, so this year, I've been observing Bitcoin use in Peru, uh, where I spent a month earlier this year. Uh, I just came back from Ghana, of course, which I mentioned. And where else have I been? Senegal. Uh, I can't even remember where I've been this year. It's been such Weren't a wild you in, year. Uh, um, Cabo Verde? Yes, I made a documentary there. Correct. Yeah. Thank you. you. You've done your, you've done your homework. I did my Mr. homework. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Good man. Uh, and the whole point is that Yes, we know that in the West, Bitcoin is this uh, savings tool, like it tends to go up in value over time. And that's really useful because we know that fiat money, you know, money issued by governments or central banks, it tends to inflate and lose its, lose its value, sorry, relative to other things. On a day-to-day -day basis, what does this look like? This, mean, this is why, you know, houses are going up in value. This is why um, anything that's sort of a hard asset or hard to produce asset is going up in money monetary value because the money is so easy to create 
I'm trying to do like really top line explanations here because I don't want to go into like a deep absolutely. dive of, you know. No, absolutely. It's, go yeah. ahead. But it's going to sound a bit like I'm dismissing things uh, rather than going into like the real fine detail of, uh, okay, is it really like money's inflating or is there, you know, is there something more to this? Uh, but, you know, if, if people want to look into this more, then I'd suggest they look at books like The Internet of Money by Andreas Antonopoulos or, you know, The Bitcoin Standard is a classic go-to, although it's quite heavy hitting. Or another one is The Progressive Bitcoiner. And these books, they tend to examine money and the history of money before explaining why Bitcoin could be this really useful um, money. Right. Okay, Bitcoin evangelism d done. The, uh, the Peru stuff was fascinating for me because there I was investigating what's called a Bitcoin circular economy. Now, you might have heard of Bitcoin Beach in El Salvador. No. Wait, El let's, Salvador. Go, let's go step you by step. Um, let's go step by step. Okay. So first of all, you said that Bitcoin is used as a remittance tool in those emerging markets. And why is hmm. that important? So right now, if you want to send money to, say, Colombia, where you're from, the best way to do it, I imagine, would be through something like Western Union or MoneyGram or another sort of money remitter. Is that fair to say? Let's say those brands have the most awareness. And so, yes, I would say a lot of people would use them. Nice. Okay. Um, alternatively, you could get on a plane or you could send someone on a plane with a load of cash. Right. Uh, you know, that would be a bit old fashioned, but people still do do that. This might be hard to believe, but it literally is the case. Yeah. Um, hopefully the hopefully that bag only has cash. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. <laughs> God, I've got plenty of stories <laughs> like that. There are all sorts of weird things you get offered in airports sometimes. Oh, yeah. Um, particularly in, uh, in, in, uh, yeah, in, in interesting countries, let's say. Uh, we move on. So with Western Union and MoneyGram, while they are, or, or other brands, of course, there are other ways of doing this. While they are useful to some extent, they're also, uh, they take a huge commission. They take, you know, anything from 10 to 30% just for the privilege of sending your money overseas. So for, for every pound or dollar or euro you make, they would take up to 30 cents or pence of that um, just for sending your money a couple of thousand kilometers. Yet if we can send an email, we can send a video, we can you know, send music across borders. Why can't we send money across borders? Right. And the wonderful thing about Bitcoin is that up until about 2017, you could send Bitcoin across borders very easily with Bitcoin on-chain transactions, which takes about 10 minutes to send. Now in 2023, you can also use the Lightning Network, which is instant fee-less effectively. And uh, again, very secure and a very quick way of sending money uh, you know, all around the world. But just, 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 so a, a, just a, quick, a quick quick one on that, because I think some people might not understand what you mean. What is Lightning Network in very simple words? Sure. So Bitcoin, to explain what a Lightning Network is, I've got to explain very basically what Bitcoin is okay. and why it's sort of necessary. Otherwise, that. it's not going to sort of, that jigsaw is just going to be missing. Right. So Bitcoin is a, a blockchain which I've heard you explain this on previous podcasts to people like on the, um, the NFT one about the Satoshi Island. So basically blockchains are really clunky, crap piece of tech, but they're really, really secure and they are immutable and they're decentralized. So basically once they start, it's very hard to roll them back or do edit undo or command Z or control Z or whatever. So that's like this fantastic ledger that's going to stay the way it is for the rest of our existence. It's going to outlive us all. You can think of it as like this sort of commandments written down into stone that will never ever change but the issue with this tech is that it's very slow very clunky and it's very very hard to scale so blockchains don't really scale 
Um, there's also one, one thing I wanted to caveat to this, which is that um, a lot of people talk about how blockchains as a thing are amazing and they're going to revolutionize everything. They're really not. I just, uh, I've got to get this point across because a lot of people will say that because Bitcoin blockchain, Bitcoin's blockchain works, my blockchain works as well. But Bitcoin is the only blockchain that has been proven to be genuinely immutable, genuinely decentralized and genuinely censorship resistant. Every other blockchain has at some point paused, been hacked or had some sort of rollback. For example, Ethereum had a rollback where basically they had a hard fork early on in the Ethereum creation and there was Ethereum and Ethereum Classic. So Ethereum Classic is technically the original Ethereum, but Ethereum, the new one, uh, carried on because Vitalik Buterin, the creator of Ethereum or one of the co-founders of Ethereum, decided that one wasn't right for what they wanted to do. So you've got to be really careful with this whole blockchain terminology because now I go to bl blockchain conferences where there are bankers and businesses who are effectively promoting their blockchains as being like permissioned blockchains yeah. or centralized I, I, blockchains. It, it got, it's an oxymoron. Yeah, I see, I see what you mean. It got corrupted, the term, for sure. Yeah, not big time. So now we've got blockchains out the way um, and we understand that while they are great in terms of being like secure and decentralized, they're never going to uh, sort of scale up to the needs of billions of people. So these blockchains have to scale in layers. And one of the most effective payment layers on Bitcoin is called the Lightning Network. And the Lightning Network works quite simply, basically on the Bitcoin blockchain, the, the layer one, let's call it, you can open up effectively a bar tab with someone else. And in that bar tab, you can send each other money or sats, or satoshis, the smallest amount of a Bitcoin, back and forth effectively infinitely. And then whenever you want to settle up your bar tab, you can go back onto layer one and close that bar tab and you know, close that transaction. However, it's not just one bar tab between me and Mr. Rad, for example. It could be me and Mr. Rad and you know, listener Bob or listener Alice. And so we're all opening up bar tabs one another, pinging satoshis between us in this sort of mini network. And it's really, really fast, hence why it's called the Lightning Network. And it works really, really well as a payments tool. Um, and for the, let me just jump in there. So for the regular Bob and Jane, this is important because it makes it faster. <laughs> the average Joe. <laughs> yes. No, I'm used to it. Yeah. It, it, the importance is the speed, of course. But the other thing is that it's scalable. So whereas in a regular Bitcoin block, you can process up to seven transactions per second with the Lightning Network, you can in theory, process infinite transactions per second because you can constantly be pinging. Uh, you can open up as you can open up seven bar tabs per second with whoever you want around the world, and then with those people you can you know send sats or stream sats or whatever it may be. And if Bitcoin is going to be this basement money on which we build the next financial layer, then we need to process effectively infinite numbers of transactions and we've got to do it in different layers. So Lightning is one layer on Bitcoin. And I think for the average listener in or the average person, rather the average Joe in five years time, they won't really use Bitcoin layer one or Bitcoin on chain. They'll just use Lightning or Liquid or Arc or any other of these um, layers. So can, could you, could you, would you say that this layers would be a bit like the MoneyGrams or Western Union kind of services? Is it a bit like that? Yeah, like, no, it's a good way to frame it. Like, because if you explain things with the existing system in mind, it does help to, it helps, helps as a metaphor, right? right. The, the tricky thing to imagine that is, is that Bitcoin is a completely new system that, you know, people call it gold 2.0. People call it, um, I don't know, like the magic internet money. People have all sorts of ways of framing it, but it is completely new. But yeah, if we're going to use this metaphor of, if we're talking about fiat models, right. 
Bitcoin is, you know, central banking, the creation of money, and it's that secure layer. Hmm. And then on top of that, you have remitters, such as MoneyGram, Western Union. And then on the layer three might be, you know, retail banks. Uh, and layer four could be, I don't know, uh, SUSUs or community banks, you know, those places where there's like a, uh, a friendly or community uh, pot of money. And that's effectively what Bitcoin will do as well. You have this um, incredibly secure, decentralized base layer. And on top of that, you've got various protocols or you know, layers, mm-hmm. um, which will be used to make money uh, easier. And it also it breaks down the barrier of entry for money. Like with the Lightning Network, all you need is a phone and an internet connection to take part in, in that. And the implications of that are absolutely astounding because, and that's why we're seeing these pockets of progress in developing countries, because you can't get a bank account in, say, the Ivory Coast without proving your date of birth and your address. Mm, um, that's where I want to get, yeah, exactly. Why, why are they opening a, a Bitcoin account or a Bitcoin wallet and not a bank account? Yeah, so it's, I, the, the framing of that question is interesting because it's, it's more like why are people forced to open up a Bitcoin account because they can't open up a bank account. You know, the, the, the KYC AML laws, which they're in place to stop money laundering and terrorism, all that nasty stuff, but they also stop and they have this horrible impact of stopping people from participating in the financial system. And that's why the system of Bitcoin is so important. What it's what actually what gets me out of bed each morning is knowing that Bitcoin can be used by a software developer in Abuja in, in Nigeria. And like five or 10 years ago, that software developer would never be able to be paid for their work because they couldn't prove their date of birth. They couldn't prove where they live. Um, I mean, the software developer definitely can read or write, but uh, also the, the issue of illiteracy and being able to go into a bank and, you know, write down the documents, the distance from a bank. Like when I was in Peru, we were um, at one point, we were two and a half hours from the nearest bank. So everyone was using Bitcoin because it just made much more sense than having to actually literally physically go to a bank. Tell me about that story in Peru, because um, I understand that Peruvians, from what I learn, around 50% of Peruvians are not banked. They don't have access to a mm-hmm. bank account because of X or Y reason. Mm. Maybe one of the reasons is because of what you said. They cannot go through the lengthy process of opening a bank account. They don't have, they don't even have maybe a national ID. They never registered with the central government. I'm from Colombia. I can tell you a lot of people are very, very informal in their lives. They live the day-to-day basis on a day-to-day basis. They don't care about even being registered in the central office of the country. They just, they just live like that. So why, or better said, tell me about the experience you had in Peru. So what happened when you went there? What were you looking for? What did you find? And also like those, uh, stats and examples you bring up are also kind of surprising and and shocking to me. Like I I grew up in the UK and like the first time I went to Tunisia to do a project there, I was astounded to realize that the official economy of, or GDP of Tunisia, it's hundred, like call that hundred percent. There's another 130% of that economy, which is informal. So Tunisia is doing you know, 30% more in just cash transactions that are never declared, that are never obviously taxed and never go to uh, you know, the building of roads and state education and healthcare and all that sort of thing. Or the pockets so of the wrong person. For me. Well, there you go. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's also why people like to keep it in, right. in cash and not pay these corrupt uh, politicians. Yeah. Um, so yeah, for me, uh, Peru is a, a similar to Tunisia. Uh, and actually similar to Morocco. Morocco, I think, is one of the most unbanked countries in Africa. Um, so yeah, Peru, I think the official stat is up in the 74, 75% of Peruvians are unbanked. 
Um, I, I thought this was initially because of those problems we've discussed, mm. like, you know, proximity to a bank account, uh, you know, also just I don't want to be banked because it doesn't even serve me. Right. But one of the things I was surprised to learn was that a lot of Peruvians just don't save money at all. Like savings culture is just not a thing whatsoever. Now, there's, there's lots of countries I've been to where savings culture is a thing because they cannot save, like physically cannot save. But even in the sort of lower middle class uh, sort of families or communities, I was quite shocked to realize that, oh, my God, they don't save because it just it, it doesn't compute. I, I don't know how to explain that. But you mean like the, the financial in, education is not there or? Just... Yeah, I, I guess so. And just even when I was trying to explain to this guy who ran a surf camp in Shikama, like this really famous uh, left-hander wave that's absolutely beautiful. And if you're ever in Peru, you must go to it. Uh, the guy there, he had a car, he had a house, he was building uh, a second room for his uh, another child that was on the way. And I was like, oh, so you must be putting some money away because money away, we were talking about Bitcoin and saying, you know, maybe save some money in Bitcoin. And he was like, why would I save money? And I was like, what? What kind of question is that? Mm. Like, I don't understand why you wouldn't save your future. So even for me, that was a bit of a culture shock. And he was like, no, Peruvians do not save money. We, we, we have money, we spend it. That's how it works. And so also I was like, huh, that's interesting because the Westerners see Bitcoin as this savings tool, right? This speculative tool, whatever you want to call it. And there in Peru, people were still using Bitcoin, but they were not at all using it as a savings tool. They were using it purely for the things we've touched upon, remittances and uh, yeah, payments and you know, income, that sort of thing. So the... Like I visited, I think, 10 circular economies all around Peru. And these are all funded by an NGO called Motive. So that's one really important thing to bear in mind here is that these circular economies only exist because of the work that Motive did. Tell me more about Motive mm -hmm. and tell me more about the actual circular economy. Like maybe you give me an example of one of the circular economies that you remember that caught your attention. Okay, so Motive, it's not at all a Bitcoin company. I mean, I guess it now is, but basically three years ago, they were helping kids get access to shoes during the pandemic. Another thing that surprised me about Peru is that in my head, before going to Peru for the first time, Peru is quite an advanced uh, Latin American country. It's, I guess, comparable to Mexico or to, no, I think Mexico is a comparison, you know, in, in the sense that it's, the middle class is slowly growing. And while there is obviously poverty and extreme poverty, it's not on the levels of, say, you know, Venezuela or, or Nicaragua. When I got there, I was like, oh my God, like it's, it really needs better systems in place to help people have social mobility, that sort of thing. Um, and one of the examples that Motive looked to address was the fact that children were dying of hypothermia in places like the Andes and near the high Amazon in the northeast of Peru because they were getting um, hypothermic sort of feet and, you know, they were losing the toes and then eventually they had to be amputated and then they'd have to die. And so like one wow. really quick fix for this or absolutely awful story is just get kids shoes right. because the second they have shoes, you know, they have warm feet and, you know, they survive the winter. And so Motive started doing this. And it was called like the Simple Steps for Life or something. And it was one of their first projects in Peru. And then they realized, oh my God, we can do a lot more stuff in Peru. Uh, and bear in mind as well that Motive is a, uh, it's quite a Christian charity and Peru is quite a Christian or, or Catholic country. Um, so the values there, like the core values of what Motive did and what Peru, Peru is all about sort of matched up quite well. And so they started looking at where else they could help, uh, you know, improve outcomes and break dependencies or break toxic dependencies for, um, for Peruvians. So they started sort of observing where they could have an impact and with which local leaders they could sort of skill up and then help to empower and raise up towns. 
So one of their ideas was to go into these sort of young towns, they're called, and find a local leader and help them sort of raise up these places. Now, one of them was called uh, Caraballo. Uh, another was called uh, blah, 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 <laughs> uh, Ancon in Peru. There's a video I've made recently about Ancon. And they were doing this up until sort of early 2021 when this, let's call him a Bitcoin whale, basically a, a Bitcoin whale or someone who has a lot of Bitcoin, who's you know very, very wealthy. Uh, he approached them and said, listen, I like what you're doing uh, with your work in Peru. Have you thought about doing it with Bitcoin? And they were like, what on earth is Bitcoin? <laughs> and uh, two years later, uh, or two and a half years later, I, I went out and visited them and was trying to understand what has happened since these guys have effectively adopted Bitcoin. And is Bitcoin a useful tool for NGOs, for charities, for those looking to make an impact? And it's, it's, it's all very new because, of course, this Bitcoin thing is only 15 years old now. And one of the things you know we've talked about already is that Bitcoin is not, sorry, Peru is not a saving country. So you know if people aren't going to get uh, that exposure to savings, then what are they actually using it for? And I was amazed by the interviews that I conducted with some of the women living in these towns, uh, with some of the uh, some of the men as well, but it was mostly the women because a lot of them commented to me that domestic violence in the town has effectively been eradicated because of Bitcoin. How is now, that? If that sounds mental. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's just absolutely mental. Um, so during the pandemic and in the aftermath of that as well, th these it's really hard to put into words. And I'm hoping that the documentaries I'm going to uh, make about it illustrate this point a bit more. Because also it doesn't sound great when you've got this white privileged man explaining about all these issues about how domestic Wait, violence... So is the documentary out point. already? No, and I, this is what I'm working on at the moment. Okay. So I'm, I'm taking time off from my regular job to try to get these stories and bring them to life. Cool. Because I, I, it's really a delicate, very, very delicate subject and one that needs a lot of care. So these, effectively, you've got these young towns where there's not a lot of opportunity, where the women are effectively uh, baby machines. And then the fathers, if they have money, they spend it at the bars or, you know, on other sort of, uh, you know, a lot of them are drinkers. Um, a lot of them have several partners and there's just not a lot of good coming from these places so the ngo is going in there and it's trying to teach people how to you know teaches the women to sew or teaches them to make uh, t-shirts or to um do like basic pottery skills that sort of thing and initially it was doing it with cash but a lot of the cash was going missing and it was ending up in the men's pockets for example and a lot of these men for, for whatever reason were you know would beat their women would would, would rape the women whatever it was all these stories were pretty harrowing and Maybe it's going to sound a bit unbelievable coming from my mouth, but I'm hoping the documentary will um, explain this point a bit more clearly. So they start using Bitcoin. And the key thing here is that with Bitcoin, you've got your money on a phone with a password and it's secure. So with cash, it's easily stolen, right? So with Bitcoin, even if you steal the phone, then it, you, know, it, you can't really use it and you can get a new phone anyway and reinstall those wallets and, and away you go. Um, it also means that you know you can send money to shops over the internet as opposed to walking up there and paying with cash. It also avoids problems with change. So you know you probably experienced this in Colombia a few times, but you go to buy with quite a big note, like the equivalent in the UK uh, in Europe. Sorry, would be pay with a fifty euro note, and they reject your sale because they don't have enough set, uh, change right. for that um, purchase. Right. So it sort of solves a lot of these issues as well as just general safety of people walking around with cash. And the knock-on effect of this. Uh, two years later, is that um, 
women now have something to do, which is, you know, these classes have got some money so they can stand on their own two feet and they're transacting and well, some of them are saving, but not a lot, um, are saving in this tool, which makes them think differently about their future. So some of these women have taken the kids and they've left the men that have been beating them or whatever, and they're now standing on their own two feet, which is absolutely wonderful. Um, and there's been a sort of chain reaction of this, um, of these people now coming together in these communi community centers, which is also a safe, sp safe space, which the NGO has put together. Um, maybe I should link to a, a video by, um, there's like a two minute video I shared on Twitter when I was there. That's amazing. Like yeah, I can Bethany. add the link on the footnotes of the, of the episode for sure. Nice. Um, because yeah, she, she explains, you know, la, la violencia domestica caído. Violencia like, domestica. <laughs> sí. La violencia yeah. domestica caído yeah. por Bitcoin. That's amazing. That's an amazing mm. story, actually. I didn't expect that at all. I didn't either. No. But it's one of those, oh, it's, it's just one of those things that um, we don't realize the implications of adopting a better money yet, because a lot of our approach in the West, say, is, oh, it's, it's a savings tool. So we can think about our futures differently. And I certainly think about my own future differently because of Bitcoin. Like prior to Bitcoin, I was a millennial who thought I'm never going to be able to afford a house. I, uh, I'm just going to work my entire life. Maybe I'll get a pension if I'm lucky. I'm, you know, home ownership was getting further and further out of reach. And as someone who's living in London and a journalist, you know, you, you're just not going to ever earn, you know, 100, 200K to be able to afford that down payment on a house. And now with Bitcoin, I'm like, holy crap, if I save my money on Bitcoin, you know, look over a 10 year time horizon, then one day, you know, a house will become um, affordable. But that's like a very privileged outlook. Whereas here you have people in communities in places like El Salvador. I mean, El Zonte was the first Bitcoin circular economy, right. which started in 2019 and actually led to the adoption of Bitcoin as legal tender in El Salvador. Now, say what you want about Nayib Bukele, um, who was, of course, quite an authoritarian president, but I've never been to a country that is so hopeful and so energetic and so energized about the future. Mm. It's absolutely staggering. I did a documentary about El Salvador because I also wanted to see with my own eyes when was okay, that? what is when going was on that? When did you shoot it? Big. I shot it in, it was October and November of last year, and then it's published in like January or February on the Cointelegraph channel. Okay. Like the, the, the plan was to, um, I wanted to survive on Bitcoin for two weeks. So I would have to live entirely on Bitcoin. And then also I wanted to get a sense of what locals thought about this whole Bitcoin thing. And so I did a bunch of street interviews and uh, yeah, interviews with people that had adopted Bitcoin and people that were kind of staunchly against this whole Bitcoin thing. And I think that a lot of what was revealed still rings true to this day in that the El Salvador Bitcoin thing didn't really manage people's expectations. Like people just thought that El Salvador would adopt Bitcoin and boom, you know, they'd all be like mm. streaming sats to each other and saving in Bitcoin and all this sort of thing. But in reality, like Bitcoin is like learning a new language. Right. Uh, you know, it's going to take years before people really understand what it is. And then there's all these secondary and tertiary consequences, which we've kind of touched on already, which are just completely anticipated. But, Sometimes wonderful. Mm. I guess there's some negatives too, right? But, but do you think people really need to understand what Bitcoin is and how it works? Because I feel like a lot of people in the world don't know what money is and they don't know how money works. Like if you ask someone randomly on the streets where money comes from, it's a hard question. Like no one really knows. Like it's maybe nowadays more and more people start getting aware of the injustices of the current fiat system, but you cannot really tell where money comes from. It's, it's a hard question. So I don't, I don't, I don't know if I agree with the, this, what you just said that it, it will take time 
for people to understand Bitcoin? Is it really necessary for people to, to understand Bitcoin? Or is it, is it more important that actually Bitcoin, with all these examples that you're giving me, becomes more, mm, let's say, trustworthy? Or the brand itself becomes more appealing? Or a day-to-day -day use, mm. you know, use it as a medium of exchange rather than only, a, at least in the Western world, as a store of value? Mm. Well, okay. How to unpack that? Yes, I do completely agree. I don't want everyone to go out of their way to learn what Bitcoin is, and because it, it's a bit like you know, some people at school don't like maths, and I totally get it. Like, it's fine, <laughs> but at some point in your daily life, you will have to use some maths. Right? You know, it's it's kind of like that. You don't need, you don't need to know you know Pythagoras and trigonometry and all that, but it's going to be useful if you are able to do some basic addition or, or subtraction. Uh, but the and a lot of people will go very, 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 very deep into this maths rabbit hole or this Bitcoin rabbit hole and, right. you know, make it their whole identity or whatever. Like I, to some extent, have got very, very deep down this rabbit hole because I find it fascinating. I also find it fascinating from this sort of travel uh, view because I just love seeing how people are, you know, interacting with this new technology. I do hope that in maybe five, 10, 20 years time, maybe, that we don't need to explain what Bitcoin is because everyone's just using it. A bit like how... We don't need to explain what the euro is or you know the bolivar is because everyone's just using it. But it is really important to understand, okay, what is money? Where does it come from? And why can't I just create it? I think there are really important questions to answer yourself if you want to understand why Bitcoin is important um, because it's, uh, you know, it is a new monetary paradigm. And I think that it is, it's not inevitable, but I think that the direction of humanity is going towards a more Bitcoinized world. I think we're very early in this journey, but I think that, you know, in, 10, 20 years time, uh, there will be a lot more countries adopting it as legal tender and a lot more people using it um, as a day-to-day -day money. And to that point about spending Bitcoin, very few people spend Bitcoin. It's only the weirdos like me or um, the circular economies around the world or to some extent, you know, more impoverished uh, places. A lot of like Americans, for example, um, demonstrate like hodl culture. Why, why, why sure do you think is that? Why do you it? think people in the emerging markets, in the circular economies that you talked about, spend Bitcoin, use it on a day-to-day -day basis? And in the more modern VIP advanced economies, people huddle or don't spend Bitcoin and just uh, keep it there somewhere stored in a wallet. I mean, top line answer is financial privilege, right? If you're in a position to save money, then you're financially privileged and you are going to end up, you know, calling hodl, 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 or whatever. But if you are literally living a hand-to-mouth existence where everything you earn gets spent, then inevitably you are going to spend all you earn. And if you, all you're earning is Bitcoin, then all you're spending is Bitcoin. Okay, that's um, clear. There are certain, like... No, yeah, go ahead. There are certain, like, country, country like, specific issues. Like, in America, a lot of people will say, oh, I, I can't spend my Bitcoin because I have to uh, fill out a tax form or whatever. But I think that's a bit of a cop-out. And I think that, you know, if you were really interested in experimenting with this new peer-to-peer -peer technology, then you would, uh, you know, spend something or just try it out, you know, buy a coffee with it, tip someone in, in Bitcoin, for example. And that's something that I find a bit frustrating because, yes, hodling Bitcoin is important. And yes, the number go up nature of Bitcoin, the fact that it has gone from $1 10 years ago to, I don't know how many thousands of dollars, like, is it $35,000, $40,000 today? Like that, I don't yeah. even... Can't, it's, it's a lot higher than it was, you know, three, four, five, ten years ago, and it's going to keep on this trajectory. Uh, so I get why people don't want to spend it. But if you only have Bitcoin, then you also have to spend have Bitcoin to, spend to live, right? Right. Well, in these well. countries, in these uh, circular economies, in Peru, in Ghana, Senegal, Cabo Verde, whatever you've been, are people using Bitcoin with 
with a simple UX. And what I mean with that is I feel like one of the, and maybe you correct me if you think I'm wrong, but in my experience, one of the things that block people from using Bitcoin is this difficult path to get to use the technology, the apps, the, 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 the passwords, the keys that you have to store, all these things that compared to a bank make it much more complicated to use. So in this circular economy, this emerging markets, are people using very easy to understand apps or what kind of technologies, what kind of wallets are they using? No, I, I totally get your point. Um, but when I think about my dad and his approach to online banking, you know, he was completely bamboozled by it. And yet he's able to do it some 10 years later. So I think that while the UX for Bitcoin could be better, and it certainly needs to be better, uh, there are some amazing wallets and apps out there. Like the, the Bitcoin Beach wallet, which is now called Blink, is used by a lot of these circular economies. Mm. And it's super easy to use. It has three buttons, which is like receive, send, and scan. That's great. Which obviously do what, would do what they say on the tin. And um, it is... I mean, if I compare my online banking or like applying for a mortgage or any or any of those sorts of things, it is pretty complicated. Right. Whereas with Bitcoin, you know that you just okay, I earn what I can uh, and I save whatever's left over at the end of the month into Bitcoin, and then I uh, yeah I wait for that to go up over a five or ten year period, and then I spend it if I want to. It's quite a simple equation as opposed to what you would have to do nowadays to make money, which is probably open up a stocks and shares account, probably get an ISA, probably get some ETF thing going, mm. you know, work out what CDOs, leverage trading, all this nonsense is. Um, it, it, Bitcoin is like, what I really like about it, or what I've personally found with my own life is that, you know, pre-Bitcoin, I would have spreadsheets of you know, uh, financial stuff that I would track and it would be a, you know, a, a, what would you call it? A balanced portfolio of all these sorts of uh, financial things. And now I just save money in Bitcoin and I wait and I get to spend more time doing the things I'm passionate about, which is, I think, ultimately what life is about, right? We shouldn't have to be obliged to financialize every moment of our existence because the money is broken. We should be able to just focus on, you know, providing value to others and, you know, pursuing our own um, interests and, you know, contributing to our own local communities as best we can. Mm. And that's another thing that I really like about Bitcoin. Mm. Jesus, I sound like such an evangelist right now. I need to, I need to reel it in. <laughs> You're definitely a Bitcoiner. I can see that. I had a, a I recorded an episode recently with Brown and Williams. She's, she's an economist and a futurist from South Africa. And we talked a lot about social credit scores, which is fascinating and scary topic at the same time. But anyway, when you talk about these communities, do you feel like this, these communities in, in Peru, again, and all these emerging countries, um, are they siloed in their community? Because as soon as they go out of their community, they cannot use Bitcoin anymore. Is that a problem for them? Yeah. So this is one of the things that affects the development of these um, economies. It's really important that when they start these economies, wherever they are, there is some way in which they can sell the Bitcoin for cash if they need it, because it's, it's pretty horrible if you want to like trap someone using Bitcoin. And I do that you know, if I'm showing Bitcoin to someone then, and I tip them, I always say, like, you can sell your Bitcoin. I don't, I don't care if you do. Like, you can change it for cash or whatever. And this is why the El Zonte one was so successful. It's because, you know, three years after it began, you can now spend Bitcoin across Everywhere. the entire country from Starbucks to McDonald's. Yeah. Right. And to, to your, um, the economist who's from South Africa, there's now, I think, four circular economies going in South Africa. 
Uh, it started with this place called Bitcoin Akazi, which is a township project. Oh, I heard about um, it. Yeah. And yeah, no, Herman Vivier, the, the founder, amazing guy. He'd, he might actually be, might be a really good podcast interview. Definitely. But um, so with, with South Africa, there's these supermarkets called Pick and Pay. And it's like a Walmart, I guess, for South Africa. And there you can spend the Bitcoin too. So it's cool that there are sort of national places you can spend it as well as, I mean, I buy all my SIM cards with Bitcoin. I use Uber credits. I buy that with Bitcoin because there's a lot of companies that accept Bitcoin for um, gift cards. Mm. So it's cool to have this sort of network in which you can then spend that Bitcoin elsewhere. Right. Because otherwise you can use it in your local community and say you get you get paid in Bitcoin for the t-shirts that you make, then you spend it at the restaurant down the street and the bar in the evenings and maybe the local supermarket, but then you travel to see your cousins one weekend and you're stuck with this Bitcoin nonsense in your phone. Mm. You know, what do I do with it? Mm. Um, but the other the nice thing is that most people, well, wherever I've traveled around the world, most people are now starting to see the value of Bitcoin. And a lot of people have actually asked me to buy Bitcoin off me, knowing that I have you know, a little bit of Bitcoin on me wherever I go because I don't travel with cash anymore. I travel with Bitcoin. Oh, really? A, what's called a pit. Yeah, yeah, because I just find it so much easier. Like if you, especially the circles I'm traveling in, I know that I can get there and I will be able to access local currency without going through a currency exchange. But, you know, if, if I went to Colombia tomorrow, I'd, you know, in the past, I would have to go to a bureau de change and I'd have to change my euros for, you know, Colombian. Right. What is, is it? Peso. Uh, what's it called? What's the, peso, Colombian peso. So... Um, and now I'll just know that I'll go to fly into Bogota or fly into Medellin or wherever it is and go to a local Bitcoin meetup and be like, yo, who wants to do a peer-to-peer? -peer? So on the buy, other hand, just as, as being devil's advocate here, I, I can also just take my card from my bank here, Revolut and 26 here in Europe and just go anywhere and pay with that. Or even go to the ATM and get cash, local fiat cash, anywhere. So again, You've why, why is that better? Because right? I get charged for that. Huh? Sorry? You've got the premium versions by the sounds of things because I get charged. If I withdraw money in Colombia with like my international card, I'll get charged like $8 for the, for the privilege. Right. That's a, that's a monthly you... fee. Yeah. Well, no, actually, there no. What, so I, what I wanted to say, I, I pay a monthly fee to the bank so that I don't get charged. Yeah. Okay, it's yeah. not that so high, you, but so you yeah. You pay the bank I... just so you can use your own money. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> okay. I, I, so... I'm just being cheeky, but we are. We're, we're tricked into thinking that banks are our friends, but no, in reality, no, I, they're making so much money off I, I like, see, basic I, things. I completely see what you mean, but I, I think the regular, again, regular Joe, and not yourself, but uh, another Joe, would think, okay, I just want comfort. I just want to have a comfortable life. I don't know. I don't care if the bank is making money out of my money. I don't see it. I don't care. I, I, I can still get my money out in theory. Mm -hmm. whenever I want it. So, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, that's the thing in theory, right? Yeah, so like how many bank runs have there been in the past two years in countries all around the world? You're in, uh, you know, you're in Greece right now. Yeah. Cyprus had a bank run where anyone who had more than, I think it was 80K in the bank had a haircut in which, you know, the, the value of the money in the bank was just chopped in half. Obviously, the financial crisis of 2008 was caused by bankers being bankers. Definitely. And... Uh, <laughs> pushing it to the limits I, and I, lots I, of my friends are bankers right they work in the city of london and they love what they do and that's great but i don't think that the 21st century will be defined by more and more central banking and you know bankers making money off like stupid things like oh sending my money across this overseas mm. oh that you know that's going to charge you or withdrawing cash overseas oh that's going to charge you as well mm. like there yes you can have a, a normal life and you can go about things and you can 
uh, yeah, travel and use your N26 or your Revolut card. But the nice thing is that you can also opt out of that system, which is inherently fair because of all the things we've discussed about so far. And you can build in this new world, which is this Bitcoin thing, and you know, learn about that, knowing that your money protects its value, sorry, keeps its value over a long time period. And it's a more fair system. And it's a system in which everyone plays by the same rules. And so it's kind of like, that's where I got to. I was like, well, what do I want to do with my life? Do I want to carry on in the fiat system? Or do I want to start learning more about this Bitcoin thing? And that's why I jumped shit from Bloomberg and Oxford Business Group and went, went down this path instead. I, I, I do agree that bankers and the financial system, especially in the last 10 years, is getting a pretty bad reputation. And it's obvious that they're, they're getting bad reputation because of all the things that you mentioned, but also mm. because they use your money in ways that you are, you're not aware of. And uh, in the end, you actually do not have cash in your bank account. It's just a bunch of numbers there that you believe mm -hmm. correspond to yourself, but they're not. But my point here is, yes, people have a bad image of banks, a bad image of bankers. That has been for a while like that, and maybe it's getting worse. But at the same time, when I, I, I tell you this story, some time ago in Athens, three weeks ago, I took a cab, started talking to the cab driver. The cab driver tells me, so... What are you doing here? We started talking about work. Then we ended up talking about politics, of course. And then we ended up talking about the financial markets. And I asked the guy, do you own Bitcoin? He said, no, I don't own Bitcoin. I know what it is because guy, let's say, was in his early 30s. He understood what Bitcoin was. But he told me, I don't own Bitcoin because I cannot see it. I cannot touch it. <laughs> and then he continued saying, I think people in Greece in general would love or love to see money that you can touch and you can see. And of course, you could say this is an antiquated way of seeing money. It's not the money of the future because everything is going digital and that's kind of very seeable and um, obvious. But do you think that's a obstacle for Bitcoin at this point? Or do you think this is not not a real concern because as we go into the future, this is not going to be a big problem anymore for people. How do you see this? Mm. Yeah, it's, it's a quite a common rebuttal or I guess a common complaint about Bitcoin. You know, I can't touch it, so it's not real. Um, and then I re my, my classic reply to them is, okay, and what about your Spotify playlist? Is that real to you? You know, I know that we used to have CDs and record players. You know, what about your, uh, you know, this conversation we're having online? I can't touch you, but I'm pretty confident you're real. Um, so it, it's, I, I, I know that people like cash and I understand the psychological implications of cash. Like if I put a 20 pound note on the table right now, we would both look at it just because it's cash, just because it's there. There is a really powerful um, hook from physical cash. And I don't know what it is about humans and money. Maybe it's like something from, you know, Thousands and thousands of years of evolution of using money right. from beads to stones to precious metals to, you know, fiat money. Yeah. There's something about humans and using money that is, it's almost like biological, right? Mm. Um, but I think that with the new generation, you know, the, the Gen Zs and younger, they are trading things on, I don't know, Roblox or Minecraft, and they know what in-game currencies are. So while that this sort of archaic image of cash must be physical it still might be an argument in 10 or 20 years time soon like you know no one's going to care about that sort of thing it will disappear if you're a taxi driver I, yeah for sure like it's it's only an, it's inevitable everything that we're doing is becoming uh digital and you know ethereal and you know something that we can't touch 
I'm sure that guy probably plays on a PlayStation or, you know, has a WhatsApp chat with his, you know, girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever it is. Um, and those messages are real, you know, they might appear on a telephone screen, but they are, they are real. Right. So I wouldn't be surprised if that guy buys in when Bitcoin is going up to, you know, 150K in a, you know, a six months or a year's time, uh, because he suddenly realized that, oh, it can be, you know, it doesn't have to be physical and yet it's still meaningful, you know? Yeah. But is it, is that a concern that you've heard of when you go around uh, in these communities that you find in emerging markets as well that are already adopting Bitcoin, but maybe there's some resistance still? Is that one type of resistance that you see or what are the resistances that you see mainly on those people in those communities? Nice. Yeah. So the, I recently was in Lugano in Switzerland and I saw lots of signs up in restaurants and bars saying cash only. Now, Switzerland, as you know, is a very, very, very banked population. And they're also adopting Bitcoin in quite a serious way. So in Lugano, which is this small, sleepy, Italian-speaking Swiss city right in the Alps, there's like 350 or 400 bars, cafes, restaurants, shops, you know, you name the place, they're accepting Bitcoin. And yet there's also these anti-bank, anti-Bitcoin people who are like, no, I don't want to touch anything that's digital. So I was quite interested by this as a journalist in a place that, you know, is, is adopting Bitcoin. And so a lot of them I interviewed them was like, oh, so why are you against banks first? And then why are you against Bitcoin? And the against banking thing was, I don't want to be tracked. I don't like the idea that surveilling us. I don't like the, the idea that I've got to give them my details to be able to use money because obviously with cash, no one knows what we're doing and that's how it should be. You know, we should be able to privately transact and the government should have no say in what we're spending on a day-to-day -day basis. And I was like, totally get it, completely understand. And then, you know, onto the Bitcoin thing, we discussed that. And I sent them some Bitcoin and was like, oh, what do you think? And they're like, yeah, but who, who saw that? And I was like, no one saw it. Did I take your name? Did I take your address? Did I take your phone number, whatever? I'm like, it's pseudonymous, you know, which is basically, like, you know, almost anonymous, but not quite. Um, you know, still stick to cash if you want to do, you know, you want to be completely private, of course. But they still didn't want to use the Bitcoin thing because it wasn't physical. They wanted to touch it. So yeah, it's, it's a very valid thing. And it's not just emerging markets where there's sort of a lack of financial literacy where this is a problem. This is Switzerland. You know? very interesting. Everyone has at least six bank accounts. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think that this, this uh, um, challenge will be recurring. And I also don't think it's a bad thing. Like I don't want everyone and their dog, dog to start using Bitcoin because A, like the network isn't actually ready for it. Right. And B, like, you know, people will make mistakes. And one of the classic issues that people have with Bitcoin is that they... They rug pull themselves in that they don't write down the 12 words, you know, the seed phrase for their wallet properly. They lose it. And then they go to speak to the Bitcoin customer service and they realize there is no Bitcoin customer service because there is no Bitcoin CEO. It's just a line of code that is getting more and more valuable over time. Um, so I think that, yeah, the, the, you can't and you shouldn't try to get people to use Bitcoin until they're absolutely ready to do so. Right. And for a lot of people, it could be a survival thing. Like in these Bitcoin circular economies, like it is like it's literally, I don't want to say saving lives, but it's definitely making people's lives a lot better. And so that's a wonderful thing. Um, but it, it's funny, like in the circular economies, there's almost like this network effect that takes place. You, If you appeal to a few of the local leaders and they understand that this Bitcoin thing is useful, and then they sort of put out their feelers to other people, then slowly but surely other people start adopting it and using it as well and realizing the benefits too. But, you know, it's like credit cards in the 70s and 80s, right? People used, used to go door to door knocking on, you know, houses being like, oh, can we uh, be interested in this credit card thing? And they'd be like, why do I want to use that? I've got cash. It works just as well. 
And now everyone and their dog has a credit card. Yeah. Um, but I don't think what credit cards did was a good idea. I, I want to see a more natural or organic uh, approach to Bitcoin and Bitcoin adoption. From your experience, when you go to these places where people are mainly unbanked and then Bitcoin is coming in and trying to grab them as, let's say, customers or users, do banks try that as well? Are banks competing with Bitcoin in terms of getting those users using their services? Or how? what, what is the position of banks in those places from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the banks just aren't even there. They don't care for don't these care. communities and they don't care. No, I mean, why would they care? It's bank's job is to make money and it cannot make money in these places. It would actually probably be a cost to them. And on top of that, the KYC AML laws make it very hard to effectively bank these people. So even if they are like a small community bank, which might do some you know, good in the area, it would have to establish an operation there. It would have to set up an ATM. But I'll give you one quick example. In Shikama, the wave I mentioned, which is the world's longest left-hander wave, you, know, you can surf this wave for one minute And it's world famous. Rip Curl have uh, in Quicksilver, they have big surf competitions there every year. Kelly Slater, the world's best uh, surfer and arguably one of the best sportsmen in the world, sports persons in the world. He's surfed there quite a few times. And yet in this town of maybe 15,000 people, is there an ATM? Nope. The nearest ATM was an hour drive away. And so <laughs> like... Bitcoin is now being used there. You know, I actually helped uh, a lot of people accept Bitcoin and they were actually really excited by it. And one of the cool things with one of the apps that I use, the Blink Bitcoin Beach Wallet app, is that I can see when other people have been invited to that app from my invite. It sounds a bit like a You're Ponzi an influencer. scheme. It's not. <laughs> it's, no, no, it's, oh, it's not. I don't, know if, I don't know about that, but it's, um, but it's just quite a nice notification to receive because you realize that, hey, like other people are, must be realizing that this is kind of a useful thing. And going from a pure cash-based, you know, money under your mattress situation to having you know money secure on your phone it's a real life improvement for a lot of these people and you know it avoids these issues that they have with the tills with atms with traveling to banks all that sort of thing but yeah to answer your question bluntly no banks do not care about disadvantaged communities around the world and they're not financially incentivized to, to care about them either so they're we, like, we are always failing these poor communities around the world and there is a way now to you know not fail these communities and it's through you know bitcoin and lightning um, and you know I've, i've seen this enough around the world now to, to realize that holy crap this is the one way we can help people be banked and once you do become banked that completely changes your optics on the world right you can think about your future a bit differently it inspires you with hope it makes you think about hmm, what can i do for my kids future what can i do for you know my grandkids future right and that is just you know That's phenomenal to see and that we're seeing mostly in El Salvador. Yeah, it's, it's life. I mean, it's, it's almost like, you know, country or community changing rather. Like it, we're seeing it pan out in El Salvador on a nationwide scale right now. And I think that that example will be copied and will be drawn as inspiration from for, for other countries around the world. Fantastic. Joe, I want to know, mm -hmm. just to wrap up, how do you see the world in 50 years from now? From your perspective, how will the world look like? No, I do like this question. So have you seen Bodies on Netflix? No. What is that? No, okay. Documentary sorry, or just, what is that? It's, it's uh, like a drama series. It's a, it's a bit sci-fi. Um, I don't watch a huge amount of TV, but this is the first series I've seen in maybe a year where I've been like, this is absolutely amazing. But there's the reason why it's relevant to this question is that there's a scene that's set or there's a series of scenes that are set uh, in the year 2055 or something. 
it's like a, a good 25, 30 years in the future. And what I thought was interesting is that they haven't really dramatized how different the year 2050 or the year 2070 will be. Um, because I think that humans have this real incapacity to imagine what the future will look like. Because if you think about what life was like 50 years ago, there wasn't even the internet. And now here we are having a conversation with you in Greece, me in Portugal, and we're from we're not from that country either. And that would have been you know insane in of itself. And here we are having a video call and explaining that someone would just have blown their mind. And I think that the rate of technological adoption and the rate of you know AI adoption and of course Bitcoin adoption um, does give me this quite hopeful, optimistic, and almost utopian vision of the the next fifty years. But humans also have this tremendous capacity to kill one another and wage wars. So. <laughs> It's a tricky thing to answer, but yeah, fifty years time, man. Let's go. Let's go big. I think we're all going to be sort of semi-robotic. We're all going to be transacting with Bitcoin. We're all going to have some sort of AI thing that's connected to us. And I hope, I really hope that dis- the disparity between like the wealthy places in the world and the poorer places in the world is a lot closer. And I hope it's a lot closer because of these technological advances, so that you know California, you know, I don't know Silicon Valley does not look like a, a different planet to, say, the outskirts of Ghana. Right. I, I don't know. It's such a wide question. Like, ha, where, where should I take it? No, that's, a, that's an absolutely amazing answer. I think um, it came from your heart, so that's what matters. It's a very difficult question also. Like, you can go different ways. And, mm. uh, but what's interesting is that most of the people that I interview that are, you know, working on cutting-edge ideas or concepts are optimistic. They're mostly optimistic. I think maybe one or two people that I've interviewed are a little bit more negative about the future. Mm-hmm. And since my podcast is about the future, I want to share this message of optimism or whatever message you come across. But so far, out of my almost 30 episodes, 95% of them have been with an optimistic outlook. And I think that's super important in my opinion because a lot of people that I talk to around, they're very put down by all this news and all this war information mm. and images that we get fed by Instagram and stuff. And so we're not very hopeful mm. about the future anymore as a society sometimes, but people that are working mm. on this cutting edge stuff and that are out there in the front lines, let's say, are optimistic. Mm. So that's very interesting. Man, that's it was a pleasure one. to wrap up. Where can people find you, Joe, where can people learn more about you? Where can people watch your amazing documentaries and learn more about Bitcoin from you and from your experiences? Thanks, dude. No, I appreciate you um, giving me your platform. And yeah, the message of optimism is definitely a thing in the Bitcoin space. So if you're feeling a bit negative, come learn about Bitcoin. And then in terms of where they can find me, well, I'm Joe Nakamoto on Twitter, YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, and Nosta. And my existing documentaries are on Cointelegraph. Just any, if you just type in Cointelegraph on YouTube, that's where previously I was posting stuff. But in the future, it's going to be on my own channel. I'm trying to find sponsors at the moment to help me do uh, this on a more permanent basis. But all the Peru stuff will be on there. All the Ghana stuff will be on there. And there's also some fun stuff from Bulgaria that will be on there as there's a Bitcoin football club in Bulgaria. Cool. But that's definitely a story for another time. That's super cool. That's super cool. Well, Joe, it was a pleasure to have you here. And if you're around Greece these days, let me know. I'll be here. Cheers, mate. Appreciate it. Likewise for Portugal. Here at the Mr. Rad Show, we provide first-hand information straight from the original source of knowledge. The personal opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect those of Mr. Rad. 
This show is brought to you by The Rat House, an unbiased, transparent, agendaless, independent media house. Our theme music is written and produced by Marco Mello.